Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. So what we want to be about at Southside here is we want to equip everyone for personal ministry in the areas of being a member and a neighbor and a guide. So we are a member of Christ's body, which means that we believe that our life is made interesting and powerful when we are united together with Jesus by faith. That resurrection life flows through us. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead is now living and dwelling inside of us. And because of that, God pours out his love into our hearts and he helps us to love one another. So we're members of the body of Christ and we're neighbors to all. That means all the people around around us, all the people that we encounter day to day, the people that we encounter consistently, our families, our church family. We're learning how to love people exquisitely well. So member, neighbor, and guide. We're guides to a few. We're guides to a handful. And the goal is for everyone in here to be equipped for personal ministry, to do all of those things in a way that's empowered by the Spirit instead of your own creativity. Those things work hand in hand because the more you keep in step with the Spirit, the more you're empowered by Him, the more creative you get with the ways that you do ministry and the more adventurous, and the more effective. Part of being equipped for personal ministry is gaining a deeper, gradual, comprehensive understanding of Scripture. We cannot be effective at personal ministry. We cannot be effective as disciples of Jesus if we are not regularly, in a gentle way, being exposed to Scripture. If, not, if we're not regularly understanding how Scripture is put together. So as we walk through books of the Bible, one of my goals is that you get a comprehensive understanding of Scripture so that you can be a guide to others. So as we're walking through James and you decide that you want to help someone else at Southside or one of your neighbors, someone that doesn't even go to church, understand the Bible better, you can open up James and begin to read through it with them and explain it to them as you go. It's, just very, that, it's that practical. So, I have that goal in mind as I'm teaching through books of the Bible. Open up to James chapter 1, and if you don't have your Bible with you, you can, you can follow along on, you can download it on your phone, um, you can follow along in the sermon notes. James chapter 1. Today we're wrapping up a section of James. We're wrapping up James 1, verses 2 through 18, and I want you to really understand by the end of today what that whole passage, what that whole section is about. We're going to focus on the last couple verses of that, but you should be able to understand what James 1, 2 through 18 is about. So does anybody have, in your Bible, do you have like any headings that divides, divides like the section into James 1, 2 through 18, that section in particular? Does anybody have their Bible divided up into that section? What's, what's the heading that is at the top of, of that? Just yell it out. Testing of your faith. Testing of your faith. That's the big picture of this passage. And we're talking specifically about how trials do that. We said how every trial 
there is in that trial a test of your faith and dependence and trust on God. And there's also a temptation. The temptation is not from God. The test is. So I'm going to read through this, and I'm just going to walk us through so we can trace the line of thinking in this 2 through 18, and then we're going to focus on verses 16 through 18. So let's just very quickly read through this to couch it in the context. James 1, 2, count it all joy, my brothers, it's brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I have a test of my faith. I'm going through a trial. I'm really excited about that because it's maturing me. And the most important part of my life is who I'm becoming in Christ. So that's what we see as the most, the goal of our life is becoming more like Christ. It's not what we do. It's not what we accomplish. It's becoming more like Christ. So I have a trial. Trial is one of the major ways that God grows me up. I'm excited about this trial. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubt for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So God, I'm going through this trial and I'm not going to be able to figure out the meaning and the purpose for this trial on my own. I need you to teach me what you're trying to teach me. Tell me what you're trying to do with this trial. How are you trying to help me grow? So we go through these trials to grow us, and then we have to ask God for wisdom. What are you trying to do in this trial? So that's an ongoing conversation we have with God throughout our lives. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So this is giving us this perspective that there are all sorts of ways that we can find meaning, purpose, identity in this life apart from God. Wealth is an easy one. That's low-hanging fruit. But this is every way that we find meaning, purpose, identity in this life. And we're saying all of those things fade away. The only thing that we take into eternity is people that we help come to the family of Christ in this life and our own personal maturing. Those are the things that are most important. So those are our life goals. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So in your trial that you are facing right now, that's testing your faith and your trust in God, Satan has put a seed in there of temptation. And this temptation is a way for you to short circuit what God is trying to do in your life. 
It's the easy way out. And every time we give in to that temptation, we miss out on the gift that God has for us in that trial. Let's see. We are, do not be deceived. Verse 16, this is today's. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. One of the ways, another way that Satan tries to slander God is to say that he's not a good gift giver. So get a trial in mind. Think of something painful that you're going through that's testing your faith. Think of the temptation and first recognize that that temptation is not from God. That's something that's coming from inside of you that Satan is probably God's enemies energizing this temptation to get off the path of this trial and find an easy way out. And then begin to recognize as you're going through this trial how you also are begin to, beginning to question the goodness of God. That's one of the temptations. What good can God possibly bring from this trial? Because in every trial, we will be tempted to question that he is indeed, in fact, a good gift giver. James reminds us that one of the essential beliefs that we have about God is that he is a good gift giver. Look at James 1.5. Every good gift... Oh, no, this is... I'm sorry. This is from what we just read. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. It sounds similar to James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So this is a major theme in this section, that God is a good gift giver, even and even in especially in the midst of trials. So I'm actually using ProPresenter today, which means we have slides. You've been requesting this of me for darn near four and a half years, and I finally listened. I was waiting for a thousand people to request it, and then I would do it, so now we're gonna do it. So follow along in your notes, and Here's the fill in the blanks. So you're going to hear me say it. You actually get to see it now. God is a giver of good gifts. That's the first thing that James wants us to know. Even in your trials, God is a giver of good gifts. Every trial contains within it a test and a temptation. That one's not from God. But this week we see that every trial also contains a good gift from God. So one of the things that I want to encourage you to do, just very practically speaking, is learn to look for God's fatherly provision and goodness in the midst of your trial. 
Look for his care for you in the midst of your trial. Because you will discover aspects of God's fatherly love for you in trials that you can't discover anywhere else. A little over four and a half months ago, you guys know my dad passed away. And as I'm going through this grieving process, which takes the cycle of a year, if you've ever lost a loved one, you know that you have to go through every holiday, every anniversary, every birthday once in order to completely grieve it and allow yourself to do it. And after you go through that cycle of a year, your heart begins to become healed and restored in different ways, as long as you let yourself grieve. So during this grieving process, I'm making room for God to show me the good gifts that he's bringing me through this. Now, I'm not, this is important. I'm not forcing it. I'm not resorting to churchianity pat answers. You know, I'm, I'm not just like telling myself scripture and just saying, just saying, I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't be sad about this. This shouldn't bother me like this. I'm, I'm happy. I'm rejoicing in the Lord. Like that's, that there, is a, there is a place and a way to preach to yourself that's good, the psalmist teaches us, but that's not it. That's short-circuiting the, really, the true good gift that God wants to give you in your trials. Don't resort to easy, light answers, lightweight answers that don't affect your heart and your soul. Wait for the deeper stuff. Wait for the things that, the thing that God has specifically for you. I know you can quote all the verses. I know you know all the promises. I know I'm going to be reunited with my dad. That brings some comfort, but there's something in here that's a deeper comfort that's personally set aside for me, and that's for all of my family. That's for everybody that's going through a trial. Jesus has something for you specifically that will bring you alive, that will bring you peace in a way that nothing else ever has. Don't force it before it's time. Make room for it. Don't even look for it. Just create space for God to bring those things to mind. That might be as simple as going on a daily walk in the woods. God, this is a hard trial. I don't know what you're trying to teach me. I'm open to it. And I also know that you're caring for me in ways that I've never received from you before. And I wanna, I wanna experience that. I'm open to it. And then just be quiet and see what he does. If you skip right to the company line, the churchianity answer, you miss out on the deeper transformative gift that God has for you. So first, we see that God is a giver of good gifts. As my spiritual director says, if it's too good to be true, it's probably Jesus. The second thing, God is radically stable and consistent. Look at that, two for two, no spelling errors in there, no grammar errors, yeah, I'm killing this. God is radically stable and consistent. Verse 17 says, there is no variation or shadow due to change. This is a really helpful quote from a guy named Douglas Moo. He wrote a commentary called The Letter of James, and this is one of the things he says about this part. The Greek words translated variation and turning often refer to astronomical phenomena in the ancient world. Variation connotes the orderly and periodic movements of sun, moon, planets, and stars. In other words, 
This passage is contrasting the stability and consistency of God with the fact that creation is always shifting and changing. Creation changes, God does not. Seasons change, God does not. Circumstances change, God does not. Moods change, God does not. Relationships change, God does not. There is only one source of stability that you can count on, depend on, Forever, and that is the unchanging, glorious, gracious, kind, compassionate, loving nature of the one who created you. And for those who are in the family of Christ, God is an anchor of stability. And when you anchor yourself to someone else who is stable, you in turn become stable. That's why for a pastor, all you need to know is when you are going, walking into a crisis is that your job, and remember this because you're all priests now, right? This isn't just the person with the microphone. This is everybody. When a priest, when a saint of Jesus, someone who's been reborn into the life of Christ, when you walk into a crisis, your job, your main job is to be a non-anxious presence who's not panicking is to be a source of stability for everyone else who feels like the world is crumbling beneath them. You walk in and say, this is hard, and we got it, because of Christ, because of his presence. I'm gonna walk with you, I'm not gonna give you churchianity answers, but I'm here. When life is tossing you all around and you feel like a ship in a storm, God is your anchor. And sometimes God will, well, Constantly, God will allow storms in our lives to show up, to show us that everything around us is eventually unstable and changing. Everything. Every part of creation changes. But no matter how much things change around us, we can count on God being a constant source of goodness in your life. So your ability to thrive as a human being is directly related to accepting and embracing change. And the way that you do that is anchoring yourself in the unchanging reality of God and his kingdom. There are all sorts of ways that we resist change. There are all sorts of way that we tr ways that we try to control things from changing. We naturally don't like change. It's where we are wired to be fixed in a relationship with someone who is unchanging, that is God. I don't like change. I don't like playing basketball anymore. I love basketball. You know why I don't like playing basketball anymore? Because the last time I played basketball, I noticed that I didn't have quite the spring that I used to. I didn't have that first step. That first step, my first step would kill you. My first step was so good. I'd just get around you. Andrew would shut me down. But everybody else, I'm going to take you. I'm going to take you to the hole, and I'm going to dunk on somebody. And I loved being able to do that. And the last time I played basketball, the time after I really hurt my ankle, I noticed that I tried to do that, and my Achilles tendon started to hurt. My knees started to hurt. My ankle started to hurt. I was really slow. I tried to jump up for a rebound, and I, like, scraped the bottom of the net. It was so embarrassing. I'm like, I can't do what I used to be able to do. I hate this. I hate that my body's changing. I hate that LeBron James eventually is not going to be the same LeBron James. He probably isn't now, but I don't want to talk about it because I love things staying the way they have always been. 
And you, in your own ways, will try to resist change too. We'll do all sorts of things to resist change. But the way that you thrive as a human being is you embrace that everything else around us changes except God. If you're in high school, you're not gonna believe me, but your relationships will change. Some of you in high school will still be in touch in 20 years. Most of you will not. Most of you will go off into the world and you have new friends, you have a new life, you'll meet friends at work or at college and you'll still keep in track, you'll still keep in touch with a couple friends from high school, but most of them you will not. You'll be a different person. Change happens. The more you can embrace that, the more you can accept that, the better you'll be. If you're depending on anything but God to be a consistent source of goodness in your life, your life will be marked by the anxiety of waiting for the other shoe to drop. Now, we're intended to get a taste of that with marriage. And sometimes uh, the single friends among us, the single Southside family among us, has a little bit of an advantage of that because they know that ultimately marriage is a beautiful picture of that, but in a million little ways, I'm going to let Kara down every day. And we let our spouses down in big ways and small ways. That's what happens because we're broken, we're humans. But what single people realize is that nothing compares to Jesus. Nothing fulfills you like Jesus. Nothing is as stable and safe as Jesus. Willard says, if you're a Christian, the world is a perfectly safe place to live because when everything else is unstable in the world, when you go through seasons of instability in whatever relationship, there's no variation or change in our Heavenly Father. And for the rest of our lives and for the rest of our eternity, he will prove himself to be that unchanging source of goodness. Hebrews 12, 28 is a neat verse. It says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Why is the world such a safe place for people who are in the family of Christ? Because we don't live, our primary citizenship is in the kingdom. The seven people who were baptized last week, they were, that, that was a right of citizenship. They were saying, my citizenship is no longer anchored in the ultimate reality of the United States or earth or anything like that. My citizenship is anchored in the reality of the kingdom and I'm gonna learn how to live in that reality for the rest of my life. So as everything else falls apart, I'm living in a stable, consistent kingdom. And my king is Jesus who knows how to provide for his citizens. So we learn that God is a giver of good gifts. We learn that God is radically stable and consistent. And now we learn that God's magnum opus gift is allowing us to be first fruits of his new creation. So I like magnum opus. It's gonna, it's gonna show up any minute. I can't wait for you to see it. It is so good. <laughs> God's magnum opus gift is allowing us to be first fruits of his new creation. Sean was so deep in thought back there. I saw you thinking, brother. I knew I was going to give you a little help. You were thinking about what I just said. Um, I like magnum opus for the drama of it. it just, it just seems like a really cool, you know, phrase. But what it means, I was an, I was an art major. I haven't told you that in three months, so I have to tell you that every three months. I was an art major in college, and I like to think it's because I really loved art, but it was because I was a, you know, I was 
I was a basketball player. I was looking for what could I do that won't have a lot of homework. I didn't realize that there were studio hours in art, so it didn't help. But I was an art major. And when we were studying different artists, one of the things that we looked for was what was their magnum opus? What was the highlight of their career? What was the piece of work that they did that was closer to a masterpiece than anything else? God's magnum opus gift to humanity is allowing us to be first fruits of his new creation. Doug Moo again says, first fruits is an agricultural metaphor used to denote an initial stage of something that gives promise of more to come. A, a farmer plants a field. And several weeks later, he walks out into that field. And he sees in the corner of that field that some of the crops are sprouting. Nothing else, just this one little corner. Some of the crops are sprouting. Those are the first fruits of that harvest. So the farmer looks at that and says, I know that the rest of the field is going to sprout. There will be a harvest in this field because I can see that some of it, the first fruits, have already appeared. That's what you are. Now, Christ is the ultimate first fruit for the resurrection. That's what God says. You can look at Jesus. He was resurrected. It's a first fruit. It's guaranteed that everybody else in Christ will also be resurrected. But we are spiritually resurrected now. If you are in Christ, what are you the first fruit of? Do you know? You're the first fruit of the new creation. Heaven is going to come down to earth. God is going to recreate the earth and the heavens, and we're going to live on it forever. And the entire world, the entire universe will be covered with the glory of God, and nothing will be hindering it. You'll see it. And all of us will have resurrected bodies, and you are bringing particles of that atmosphere that will cover the universe one day into your life, into the world right now, because you have been resurrected internally. If you have put your faith in Christ, you are first fruits of the new creation. So when people look at your life, it's not just like they're saying, oh, that person has become, you know, nicer or more patient those are all really good but they're seeing a whole constellation of ways that you are changing they're seeing dramatic change in your life that is empowered by the love of God in you through the spirit of God in you and they're so amazed at that change that you can tell them it's because I am part of this I was I've been born again as the family into the family of God I've received the Holy Spirit. I'm part of the first fruits of the new creation that's coming. And they're going to look at you really, really weird. So you probably shouldn't say all that at once. But you can think it to yourself because that's exactly what you are. You are first fruits of this new creation. When we disciple people, we don't use the resources that are available to us. We just tell people how to live differently. You live differently because you are a new creation. 
So we have to spend a lot more time telling people what God has done for them already than just telling them how to live different. When, uh, uh, let's say, I have a friend that adopted orphans from Russia. And he said when these, these kids came to his house, they had such a scarcity mentality. They, they would steal food at night. Hoard food. They would hide it in their closets. They were, they were always afraid that mom and dad wouldn't provide for them. They did all sorts of things like that. And what my friend had to tell them is, listen, you're in a new family. I'm always going to take care of you. You're always going to be provided for. And, their, and my friend's job for the rest of his life is to convince them to live as though their new reality is true. Not to tell them, don't steal food anymore. Not to give them you know, moral commandments, but to say, you are a new creation. You're in my family. Your job is to act like it. Your job is to live as though you are in this new creation, this new environment, this new family to live into the new identity that you have, and that's what we do. We've been made new. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 17. And spiritual growth is acting as though we've been made new. The ultimate good gift that God has for us that powers us through all the ups and downs and changes of this life is the reality that we are the first fruits of the new creation one day cover the globe with the glory of God. Let's wrap up the section. Here's what James 1, 2 through 18 says. <clears throat> Here's the summary of the last several weeks. When trials come into your life, you can say, bring it on. Because I know that I'm not going through this alone and I know that you're going to use this to accomplish the most important goal in my life, and that is to become spiritually mature. And I need your help, God, to know where you are maturing me. So I'm asking you for wisdom and for insight. And it doesn't matter what my earthly circumstances are, because the most important part of my life is maturing spiritually, and you're using this trial to do that. So by the grace of God, I'll resist the easy way out, the temptation, and remain steadfast in this trial. And I'll entrust myself more and more to you, God. You are the God who never changes. Any temptation, any easy way out is not from you, but there is a good gift for me tucked away in this trial, and I'm going to search for it like a treasure hunter. I'm going to make space for you to reveal that to me. And the way that you've guaranteed that I can experience all these things and that I can grow, that I can be transformed, is because you've already made me new. I'm already part of your new creation. So when a trial comes, thank God for it and look for his fatherly care and love and provision in that trial.
Let's pray, and then Tyler's going to be leading us in communion. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.